0: What's up? Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri, College of Veterinary Medicine. Today on the podcast, we're going to get into some of the topics that surround the current state of how veterinary education works. Ever since I started vet school, uh, and I've had many different learning experiences in the classroom... I've realized that there are a ton of things that work really well in terms of learning all that we need to know in Vet Med, but also there's a lot to improve upon. So I'm excited to introduce a friend of mine who is currently a fourth year vet student at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So meet Matt Ashuto. We'll learn a little bit more about Matt's background and career goals as we get more into the podcast, but I really wanted to have Matt on today because of his deep passion and talents for education. I'm excited to hear what Matt has to share about the current educational climate and what we can do to make uh, the most of our vet school experience. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. I am so thrilled that uh, we could get together and have this conversation and get to see you again. So how is it going? It's
1: going all right. It's the crazy busy life of a fourth year clinic student who has no idea what they're doing in clinics, I guess. it's Like, like, like we talked about, I'm on a, an externship. So for the first time, I'm actually in a clinic seeing what it's like in private practice. And the differences are
0: uh, pretty profound. <laughs> so. Hi, I bet. So Matt and I met at an externship at Live Oak Bank, actually, this past July in Wilmington, North Carolina. And this was a really great externship. I recommend um, all of you listening to look into it, um, it's actually an externship that has nothing to do with practicing medicine, which was a really nice change of pace. Um, it was all about getting business skills that relate to veterinary medicine practice ownership, uh, anything stemming from financial knowledge, you know, reading bank statements and and reading financial statements and and how to manage your practice financially, also marketing marketing. Uh, telling yourself on a personal level, uh, learning how the banking industry works, of course, um, how to buy a practice, and, and the process that goes into that. So it was really, really cool. So throughout the, the two weeks that Matt and I, as well as three other veterinary students, uh, were down there, Matt and I had a lot of great conversations about our careers and where we were going, uh, where, where we hoped to go with them, and, and talking about our experiences with vet school and the current educational climate. So I wanted to start off by first asking you, Matt, uh, what your current goals are with your career. I know it could change, uh, you know, by the day, uh, by the week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so what are, your, what are your plans as of right now uh, as a full-fledged veterinarian?
1: Oh, man. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it does sort of change. I think that, you know, part of it is that you sort of go through vet school and sort of assuming that you're going to go into small animal clinical practice. And um, the closer and closer I get to that, the more and more, I guess, afraid of it I I am. And um, not that I'm unsure that I couldn't do it. I feel like, you know, like I've kind of learned over the past week and a half at this place, I think I could do it. I think I could be pretty good at it. And I'm pretty sure that you know the education system that we have set up in the clinical year and all that stuff definitely prepares us to go into practice but i'm definitely not sure that that's the thing that i want to do so like as you know that you know my my background has nothing to do with veterinary medicine and, and I, I go to university of tennessee and tennessee doesn't have a clinical requirement at all for admissions so um you know my background was in chemistry and i always just assumed i would go into research and i'm old man i'm like 32 aging <laughs> i definitely have significantly more gray hairs <laughs> yeah. my my head is full of gray hairs now my beard is uh kind of getting some as well so i don't know if i want to do the whole phd residency route um so i think that you know part of what i'm i'm thinking is doing like a part-time um vet stuff you know relief work spay neuter clinics um trying to do even just like a two or three days a week at a clinic type of thing. And then also start this whole education thing that I've been kind of talking to you about um, as well. So that's that's part of, that's that's it. I guess right now, that's that's the thought.
0: Right, and I know that you wanna be a big mover and shaker in the education scene, in vet med and, and beyond. And you are a mover and shaker thus far uh, from from how I've gotten to know you and the things that you do. Um, outside of vet school. So I want to know what, what was the motivation? or What was the driving force behind you thinking to yourself, you know, there's some changes that could be made that need to be made. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to to change the face of, of veterinary education and how us as vet students can better succeed in vet school and what could be changed to make it even better um, than it is right now. That's interesting. So I think that...
1: Okay, so um going back to my undergrad experience, you know, everyone's undergrad experience is sitting in giant lecture halls and doing their very best to pay attention, right? And like um I went to UCSD, which has, you know, if you're taking chemistry organic or any of those classes, you're you know, you're lucky if you're in like a 100 person class. <clears throat> and so there's the sort of that the sort of dissociation between student and teacher that exists in undergrad and then I got my masters in um, in chemistry from DePaul, and I, I saw like that, that was a great um, program in and of itself, but when I was talking to other people kind of in um, parallel programs, and really even at the University of Tennessee and at Northwestern where I took some classes and stuff like that, I've kind of seen, as in general, graduate schools are full, graduate and professional schools are full of people who really want to learn a lot and have to fight a lot to be able to get that. So it's the the learning doesn't really seem facilitated in um, in a great way. It does seem to be a lot of like PowerPoint presentations, a lot of semi labs um, that are you know still possibly lectures, but they're like quote unquote labs. <laughs> and so you know they do. I, I feel like there's a there's a huge opportunity really just across the board to provide people with education that <laughs> that aren't really getting it. Um, And, and I think that kind of going back to my own improv experience, I did improv comedy for many, many years, I don't know, seven or something professionally. And then I just like took some classes when I was in Chicago. Um, and you know, in that I I did a ton of teaching and I saw that as you get people excited about a topic and you get people really involved, they want to learn and they want to get better. Um, and, and there's ways to kind of, to push people into it and work together for like the collaborative, better good, um, or greater good. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but I guess those are all the things that I'm kind of thinking about that, that, that kind of pushed me into this thing of like, you know what, that we can do something like we can make this better. <laughs> you know, the teachers don't seem to want to be there. The students want to, don't want to be there. It's like, what are we doing? <laughs>
0: you know? So, so what ideas do you have to make it better?
1: So that's like, that's, I guess, as uh, like one of our professors would say, it's like complex and multifactorial. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like the one major, th- gosh, there's a couple of major facets here. And like one is expectation. Um, the other is culture. And then I guess the third is actual, you know, delivery of inf- information. And so um, I think that the there's sort of, and we were kind of briefly talking about this. So there's like an expectation mit- mismatch almost where, you know, it's like you go in, um, you go into a school and the, the professors and the academic leadership and all that sort of have this idea of like, okay, this is what needs to be taught. Like you need a bacteriology course. You need a virology course. You need like these, these systems. You go through clinics um, and then you take the NAVLI, you pass you get the DVM, great. So as long as you pass the NAVLE and as long as you get the DVM, like you're going to be, that's good. Like that's our metric for like how well we've prepared you up to that point. But I mean, it kind of, if you notice, um, and you'll kind of see this when you start studying for NAVLE, like the information that you're studying for that and the stuff that you're using in clinics and the stuff that I'm finding that we're applying in private practice is like tangentially related to a good portion of what it is that we've been taught. And so I think what ends up happening um, is that we kind of get overloaded with, I don't want to say minutia, but it does seem that way sometimes, like things that don't necessarily matter to the everyday practitioner. And so as a result, we don't get to focus on the things that do matter to the everyday practitioner. Um, And I think that there's, you know, we just haven't really sat down and and created that expectation um, or at least align the expectation with reality in a real way. And so, pairing pairing back the curriculum a little bit would be great. And I know that some schools are better about that than others. Um, there are schools that I've talked to students where they, you know, the the curriculum committee will sit down and a bunch of people will be like, "Hey, let's look at this respiratory course. You don't need this or this or this." And like, you know, they they pair each other back a little bit, um, which is great. So that's one. And then the other is culture, um, which I could talk forever about. But basically, it's like if you looked at an uh, uh, academic institution and compared it to, like, a a Google or a Samsung or any of these, like, bigger Zappos, um, those companies have a corporate culture where people want to go. Like, you know, Live Oak Bank. Like, we were there. We wanted to show up every day and sit in these, like, these amazing conference rooms with windows, and there's trees outside, and people are happy, and they all sort of, um, they work together on some sort of common goal. Um, Whereas I feel like in academia, we don't, that doesn't exist. Like, corporate culture is not a thing in academia. And as a result, you have overworked professors, you know, having to do a lecture at two o'clock while running from a surgery in order to get to that lecture. And then they have to, like, go make sure that they do all their PCR samples or, you know, write a, a paper, whatever it is. I mean, they're super, super stretched thin. And then they have residents who are then overworked as a result, who then, and then it all just sort of trickles down and no one's happy. <laughs> and so, the whole, just that, like if we could just improve culture, um, you know, and get people to enjoy
0: being there, then I feel like that would go a really long way. Cool. So that, yeah, that's, that's all great, really great insight on kind of what's going on right now and, and your thoughts. Uh, another big question I had for you. So since you are nearing the end of your DVM educational experience, um, is there anything that you would do differently knowing the things you know now? Um just in terms of of how you've learned things um, or or not learned things that you should have learned now that you're in a clinical experience, anything you would have you would have changed um, in your first three and a half years?
1: Yeah, I, I think that we have a tendency, and this is sort of built into us because of, the programs that we've kind of gone through. We've always tried to get into this this very competitive, you know, veterinary school program. And so we've done, we've gotten really good at taking like multiple choice tests and, and right. you know, passing each of the levels, jumping over the hurdles um, without necessarily regards for actually learning the information. And so what uh-huh. has to necessarily happen and definitely does not with anyone, inclu- myself included, is, is make that switch to realizing like this is stuff that you, you know, I need for the rest of my life. Right. And even even like the, you know, if you're a small animal person like the cow stuff and the horse stuff or whatever it is that you don't think is applicable, it actually ends up being really really helpful and, you know, professors say this all the time, understanding the mechanisms of pyralisity and alkaloid toxicosis is <laughs> equally beneficial to small animal stuff because you can kind of see like, oh, that disease process is, you know, akin to these other disease processes as well. So, learning to learn is, I think, something that we could all do a lot better about. And a big piece of it is just, we just get, we kind of get overrun with the amount of material. And so it's way easier to like look through your notes a couple of times than to, or, and then when you're done with the test, like just forget it all. Like just flush it. We don't need it. We have another test to study for on Friday and it's Tuesday. (laughs) So (laughs)
0: um,
1: it's really then hard to, you know, go back or force yourself to go back and really look at that information again. Or when we're studying
0: it the first time, like really study it to learn it, not just to recognition. Um, right. And what I've found, you know, especially in the past year is that there's so much pressure on learning everything that they're giving to us, which I don't think is humanly possible to learn absolutely everything that they expect us to know. Yeah. Um, so what I'm finding is that I'm learning as much as I possibly can. But like you said, another test is coming up in a day and I've got to figure out a way to make room in my head, in my yeah. short term memory to um, to pass the exam where what I probably should be thinking is I should be committing this to long term memory um, don't worry so much about succeeding on the test as much as I want, but making sure that I remember this stuff in a month, six months, and a year. Because what I'm finding is that, I mean, if you ask me, you know, even decently sized concepts about anatomy from my first year, I may not be able to recall a lot of it. Um, right. So, how, I mean, what's your recommendation on that in terms of, uh, you know, trying to take in all the information that we need to, Keep it in long-term memory, um, so that we don't have to go back once we're in the in the clinic and having to relearn everything that we already did.
1: Yeah. So part of that though is not necessarily your fault, right? And so there is, and you're absolutely right. Like there are things that we can do as students for sure, but I think it would also be really nice for professors to kind of like meet us halfway. And again, they're overrun with their jobs and all that kind of stuff, so it's really difficult to do that. But you know, if you could, in theory, if you could go through your notes and kind of get a basic understanding of everything, right? If you knew like a little bit about, um, basically every disease process or, um, you know, more about the things that you see more often and and that kind of thing, um, that would definitely be beneficial. So it's not necessarily, our fault, right? Like w- it would be great if someone can like meet us halfway <laughs> a little bit in, in the and sort of like lay out, hey, these are the, the basic fundamentals. Like you're gonna need to, you're gonna see pancreatitis cases. You're gonna see diabetes. You're gonna have a DKA patient in the hospital and those types of things. Um, so that would be really helpful. I always recommend, so I teach MCAT stuff um, for Kaplan. And what I always recommend my students is like, know a little bit about everything. Enough that then gives you a good foundation to learn the in-depth de- details. Like I don't necessarily need to know that um, uh, respiratory syncytial virus in, in the bovine is a pneumovirus. Not necessary information to exist in my head, right? But to understand like the, the respiratory disease complex, that's, you know, good information that I should definitely kind of have, you know, walking around with. Um, a big portion of that too. And I think that this, this is actually a, a the, probably the better answer to your question, which is that you should stop caring so much about your grades. So unless in, in and e- even if you want to do a residency, um, but especially if you don't, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. Like focus on the things that make you a better person and a better candidate for whatever job or whatever career it is that you want to do, because those are the things that are going to actually move you forward in your life. We have gotten so locked into this like 4.0 mentality and, and seeking it as best as possible that we get really stuck on, oh man, I can't possibly review the stuff that's important or I can't possibly volunteer or work or whatever. Like I have to study for this respiratory test because you know I'm not gonna get an A if I don't spend all weekend doing it or whatever. We know that no matter how hard we study, we're not gonna retain all that stuff, even like a month down the road. <laughs> yet still we are in this cycle of, you know, we need to get these 4.0s. So I think that it would behoove everyone, especially in their early years, to sort of readjust their goals, try to understand what it is that their goal is now. Because at the beginning of life, you know, from like, you know, some people say like, you know, their earliest waking memories, they wanted to be a veterinarian. So from then until vet school, your goal was to do well academically and get into a veterinary program so that you can be a veterinarian. So when you accomplish that, that's it. Like, now you don't know what to do. You're like lost in this nebulous cloud. And, and I think that that is where a lot of, um, a lot of that kind of angst and uncertainty and depression and, you know, all kind of comes from is because you're driving towards this goal, but you don't know what the goal is anymore. You're like, I don't know, I maybe get more A's. Um, and so that's what I think. I think that if you kind of readjust and refigure out, like, what is it that you really want from life in this profession and then do those things, then you'll be far happier for sure.
0: Right. And, and I, I thought about that a lot too. Um, cause I actually have kind of like the reverse thing going on with me, which I actually, I recorded a podcast this morning and I talked about the same concept about, um, before vet school, you know, I was a very average student. Um, So it's a miracle that I'm even vet school just based on my grades. But anyways, now that I found something I really love and I've learned how to work smarter and study better and learn better, um, I'm getting the best grades I've ever gotten. Um, so which, which is great. Um, but I, and coming into vet school, I knew the grades to me were not going to be as important, but now that I'm getting better grades and even better as each semester goes on, when I do get a, a, a poor mark, um, I beat myself up a lot about it. Whereas if you if that had happened to me when I was in my first semester, I've been like, you know what? I passed. That's great. Uh, and we're going to truck along. So it's this weird psychological game, at least in my mind. Yeah, for sure. It's because,
1: I mean, it is a psychological thing. It's you, you've like, you've you know, had the, the sweet taste of success. And so you're going to kind of keep right. trying to have that as much as possible. And And I like, you know, when I was in my second year, that's when I got my first... 4.0. So, like, a lot of people had them in their first years, and mm-hmm. I was just, like, I was working, and I was exhausted, and I'm old. And so <laughs> it wasn't until then, and, and like, I kind of started having the same thing. So after I got that, I'm like, no, I can't possibly let it go. Um, and I worked really, really hard. Then, like, the second part of the second semester or second year, and I'm just at a certain point, I got so burned out. I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what is this? So I kind of hit the right. wall. You kind of hit that point that – that point where you're like standing, staring at a mirror, shoving chocolate cake in your face and you're like, maybe I should go on a diet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like whatever <laughs> that, like, that last thing is before you just sort of completely go the other direction. And it's not to say that I've, you know, I've still done really well, kind of like, you know, to your point. And, of course, I I still get upset if I don't get, like, on rotations if I don't get an A. Like, I I say that I don't care, but then I'm I'm like, oh, but what did I do wrong? But in a way, you have to kind of dissociate yourself from it. Because I find that if I want to get an A on a rotation in clinics, I have to sacrifice experience. And I have to instead, like, do amazing paperwork or... Uh, right, you, you know, stu- the really important things, right? <laughs> exactly. So, study for the quizzes and not really see the patients. So, you know, you gotta, again, you gotta adjust your your goals. And and in clinics, my goal is to be like, well, I gotta see the patients, learn things, right?
0: Right. So. Another thing that I struggle with too, and and I wonder how it is for you um, at Tennessee that you know going back to doing well on exams versus learning the information. I sometimes feel that the 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 topics and the questions that we are examined on in vet school do not reflect the the knowledge that we have or the important knowledge. So, for example, like you said, it's it's really important to get those basic concepts down, the basic mechanisms, so that you can then apply that to trying to figure out these more um, complex um, and difficult things, which are all based off of this original big mechanism. But of course, we're not asked that on the exam. Um, we're asked these really weird and, you know, tiny details that, you know, what's happened quite often is that, you know, I study really, really hard and, and learn these, these big, I uh, these big picture ideas. Um, but I don't do well on tests. And I feel like it's almost unfair that the grade that I got, let's say it was a, a low C that doesn't, that does not, um, it doesn't demonstrate the knowledge that I know about the topic. So I feel like the tests are not, sometimes, not all the time, obviously, uh, and probably even a, a small portion of the time, they're not testing us on what really is important in clinical medicine. Uh, and and that may just be a disconnect between academia and clinical life, but I, but I don't know.
1: Right. So I think you can make, yeah, definitely both arguments. And I, I think what you're kind of talking about, though, um, gets to sort of, uh, you know, a heart of another part of the problem, which, you know, if you asked any clinician or any teacher and you said like, Hey, do you think this multiple choice test is really the best way to assess my understanding? Like, I would say it would be a resounding no from everybody. I think people understand that Uh maybe just like lecturing at folk and then giving them a test is not the best way to, to learn and then assess learning. Mm. But it's kind of what we're we're stuck with, right? Given the current model, right. it seems like, you know, as the professors get busier and busier and the rec- and the expectation is that they get grades out faster and faster, um, right. that you sort of, there's a shift that occurs towards multiple choice tests. And so then you have a professor who, you know, if you look at their credentials, it's like they went through, a uh, you know, that school, just like you, they did a residency, got a Ph.D. along the way. And then now they're teaching like nowhere in there was how to m- adequately assess the student by multiple choice test taking. Right. So they don't right. know how to create these things like they're just sort of flying by the seat of their pants on that. And so, like, of course, it doesn't adequately assess your Understanding And then, of course, like, the questions themselves are a little bit weird and obtuse. And, you know, from their perspective, it totally makes sense. But then from your perspective, you're like, what do you mean the only sign? <laughs> and,
0: like, you're beating
1: right. yourself up on about that. And so, yeah, I think that there's, like, a huge disconnect with, with that. But the crux is that, um, that that's not a great way to assess whether or not people know things. And it's also not a great way to teach people you know, you ask me a bunch of questions, like I should be able to learn something from the testing experience itself. Like as awful as it would be, you would know a ton of stuff if you had to do oral exams. (laughs) Right? Right. That lasted like weeks at a time or whatever. (laughs) Like of course you would know a ton, but it would also be terrible for everyone involved. Oh, and then the other part of your thing is like, yeah, there's a disconnect between academia and private practice for sure. And if you, um, and I know you're not in clinics, but like when you get into clinics, Let's say the discharge paperwork that you have to do or the soaps that you have to write, or really just most of the things that you do. they don't emulate what occurs in private practice, and I'm not saying that it should. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I think that private practice and academia are separate for for good reasons and I'm sure that there's you know there's a huge debate that can occur about about that for sure, but there is a place to kind of maybe overemphasize writing explicit discharges and all that kind of stuff but also I think in the clinical year it's got to be necessary to sort of transition people to show them like this is how you apply these ridiculous um, very in-depth analytical soaps to what you will actually be doing in practice because without that transition and without an understanding of what is actually going to occur in practice, it's really difficult to continue doing that stuff like we know how to do mm-hmm. stuff in, in in an amazing way and we are Um, I I think in that, and I was earnest when I said before, like, I think that we're ready to practice for sure. But what happens is that, you know, it's so different than what's going to, what we're going to show up and start doing. The mentorship that we get in practice is now going to guide us and we're just going to kind of let go of all of those other things. Like when I talk to these new, these vets that I'm working with now um, in this externship, a lot of them are like, yeah, it's just very different than academia. Like, you know, I wanted to do this, but we just don't do it, and so they don't—they don't know how to make that transition, or or fight for something, or or you know even apply what it is that they learn really into this in this non-academic setting. So yeah, there's right. that mismatch too. Uh,
0: so speaking of of your experience in clinics, which I know is not you know totally extensive since you're you've only had you know several weeks of of clinic experience at least in vet school. Um, do you feel like th- the things that you are tasked to do and the things that you foresee yourself doing um, in, in the clinic as a veterinarian, that you will be, um, confident in, in what you're doing, or do you think you're going to get out and kind of be like, oh crap, I, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this, or, um, I'm not sure if I know exactly what I'm doing, but I'm going to, I don't want to say fake it till I make it, but, um, you know, learn, learn as we go. Um, cause that, that's one of my big fears, um, is that when I get out, um, I'm not going to be, I'll think I'll be ready, but I won't be ready. It'll take me, you know, never, another several months of of being mentored and, and kind of relearning um, these different things until I'm really confident. Well, most
1: of what you do in clinics is um, either paperwork or tech work. So mm-hmm. uh, from that perspective, no. Like what I keep trying to do in in my current, you know, job is basically, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll go grab the dog because like, why wouldn't I? And they're like, why would you just have a tech do it? I'm like, or an assistant do it or something. It's like, okay, I'll draw the blood or place this catheter. It's like, no, like we have a technician who will do that stuff for you. So I find myself very confused about what to do in this job because like most of what I do daily in the clinic is just, it's either assistant, um, tech or, you know, I guess doctor's aid, um, work most of the stuff. Right. But then there's probably, like, the 20%, 15% of stuff that is actually doctor things. And I think that that comes from rounds um, and case discussion stuff. And so, yes, I think that I'll be ultimately ready. I mean, there will be a learning curve because there's a lot of stuff that we just kind of don't do in clinics, like ear cytology, skin scrapes. Like, you don't do that stuff because unless you have, like, a good derm rotation or something like that. But, you know, you're not going to do that on neuro. You're not going to do that on... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when you're doing orthopedic surgery. And, like, those happen to be most of your rotations. So, like, yeah, I think that there will be a big learning curve. But just like with any job, like, you got to figure out where the blood tubes go and what the protocol is and to do basically everything. Um, right. So it's a lot of weird, fundamental, small things that that um, you're going to have, like, a huge learning curve on. <laughs> but But I do think that your doctor stuff, like your radiology courses, your ability to, like, actually think about cases will be there. Um, and as long as you don't let that go when you're in practice in favor of just like, oh, well, it's a, it's a skin thing. Let's give it antibiotics. Then I think that you'll sort of maintain that sort of thoughtful doctor that the academia has sort of uh, created for you.
0: Right, right. So speaking of the current climate and, and kind of this disconnect that we're talking about between let's, let's call it real life veterinarian versus in the classroom veterinarian. Do you have any ideas of what we could do as students to supplement our learning, or at least how we're being taught in the lecture room, um, to kind of make our lives more easy once we get to clinics, um, you know, be that how to apply more things to, to long-term memory versus, um, just trying to learn it to, to pass the test, um, how to apply different concepts to real life, um, you know, experiences, you know, I, I don't know, I feel like there's something more that we need to do, um, not to, not that it's our fault that, eh, no, let me say that again, um, that there's, there's more that we should be doing as students um, to supplement our education, um, stuff that we should be doing on our own. I don't know what that is, but I feel like there's something that I could be doing more of to, to make my educational experience more worthwhile, or rather more effective, uh, while I, before, uh, before I hit the clinic um, experience.
1: So you totally could. So let's just, if we talk about sort of ideals and theoreticals, um, of course, the thing that sort of everyone's kind of talks about is that experiential learning is gonna be the one that it will most solidify ideas and understandings. So Mm -hmm. we had a dog, a personal dog who, um, it was like, you know, we only had it for like three months and it came down with IMHA. And Mm -hmm. I was in my first year and this is before we even learned IMHA, but my wife was a year ahead of me. She was in ClinPath and they were talking about, you know, hemolysis and all that kind of stuff at the same time. And so that case for her because we you know took it through the ringer through the e- ICU in our school it was there for like two weeks doing the thing before it eventually passed away so every aspect mm-hmm. of IMHA is one that both of us know pretty well <laughs> because we have right. that sort of <laughs> intimate understanding or intimate understanding and and that's something that even you know me who I didn't have that on that kind of base knowledge because I wasn't really at that point yet. I still knew enough by the time that we got to that information in second year that I still remembered everything. So, that, right? Like, cases, of course, is gonna be the way to put it away. So, in theory, if you were to learn some things, um, say you were to go through like abdominal anatomy and then go into the clinic, you know, watch a surgery. And then think about, it. okay, cool. So they're doing um, an ad- abdominal explore. And then you like go back to your book and you, you know, think about, okay, sweet. So I saw them go in here, you know, they took out like small intestine, So that was all probably jejunum, 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 like tons of jejunum everywhere. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, they went in over here, they tried to avoid the spleen. And, you know, as you're looking at it, it's on like the right. So it's actually the dog's left and like all that kind of stuff, you know, as you're doing it will then potentially uh, enable you to like put that stuff away. So, mm-hmm. you know, an anatomy, I guess, is already visual, but even complex mechanisms um, have to do with like renal function or, uh, you know, GI loss or coagulations or coagulopathies, like any of that kind of stuff, you can easily apply to a case. Now, right. a big part of that is finding the case, um, taking the time to go down to clinics, talk to a clinician, getting with a group and discussing it, being enough, a, like a part of that case to learn the information kind of as you do it. Um, or as you go through it. So that's hard to facilitate, but yeah, if you could do it, that'd be awesome. Um right. So that's one. There's other, you know, if you look up just theories of learning and I am by no means an expert uh, uh by mo- by no means an expert at talking. <laughs> but if you look up uh <laughs> you know, if you look up theories of learning um and I'm not an expert at it, but there's a lot of things to suggest that that we are not necessarily an auditory people, right? Text-based, mm-hmm. um, we were never really supposed to have a written language. Um, the spoken language is like plus or minus, but we really think in, in kind of pictures. And so if you kind of, if you go through the um, the method of loci and, you know, all those things that like the old Greek orators used to do where they'd mm-hmm. like, you know, in their mind's eye wander through a, a big, palace and over here, they, you know, they put little pieces of um, their story all together. And like that type of uh, mnemonic or at least memory tool enables you to remember things and and it kind of locks it away in like a long-term way. So really understanding how learning works, um, you could definitely rely on some of those tools and put stuff away for a much longer period of time, as opposed to just like reading through your notes, like five or six times, because, you know, you just have to recognize it for a multiple choice test. So right. um, again, one requires a lot more work than the other, uh, but, <laughs> right. uh, but for sure, like I remember way more about circovirus than any of the other viruses. Cause that's the only one that I like had the, you know, sort of wherewithal to force myself to do. Um, right.
0: Speaking of, uh, speaking back on this whole, some of these disconnects that we're experiencing in vet school life and in the educational system in general, another interesting thing that I have realized is that they're is not a whole lot of collaboration between veterinary school and human medical school. And I find that interesting because we're essentially learning pretty much the same stuff except a different mammal. Um, and it's just it baffles me because the teaching styles it seems with with the several vet students that I've gotten to know um you know through vet school and and before vet school, it's just weird that that we're not, there's no collaboration there. For example, I know that at a university in St. Louis, the way that they do their, um, their didactic curriculum is that instead of doing like a year of normal things, and then a year of the abnormal, and then a year of fixing the abnormal, they kind of do it all at the same time, but, but by organ system. And I found that interesting. Um, and I don't know which would be better. Uh, obviously, I'm not a med student. I haven't gone through that. Um, but it's interesting. And, and the other big difference that I've I've noticed in the med school community is that um, going back to grades is they don't typically do letter grades. They typically have pass-fail um, courses. So do you think that there should be a need to collaborate with the the educators over on that side, um, do you think it would be beneficial to both parties or is it kind of a different ball game in terms of what we're learning, how we apply it uh, and the industries we go into?
1: I mean, I, I have a background in improv. Like I'm always for collaboration. Like I think that right. the best ideas are ones that are derived out of the best ideas of many. Right. So, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, those, um, those types of ideas and that type of collaboration is something that that does exist within our sort of veterinary industry, veterinary education. Like it does, it's there, um, but it's just kind of. I guess it's hard for us to see it because we're not we're not a part In of it. every school, right? Like, so right. So, yeah, I mean, of course, we should be taking, like, the best ideas from all the different fields and sort of figure out how it is that we could teach. And I think from, from that same perspective, we should look at um, pre-K elementary kind of things that are happening in certain types of schools there, um, experiential learning. Um, we should look at the stuff that the Khan Academy is doing and trying to see, like, mm-hmm. is any of this actually something that could be then applied to what we're doing now um, and developing a curriculum that way? So it's interesting. So you mentioned, like, blocks and grades. And so, so like, like that by system is, is effectively, like, a block system. And there are schools, um, like, Davis, I think, for example, that's in a block system where they'll do kind of what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, there's benefits to that. So students, when I talk to them um, who go through that type of system, like, the benefit is, like, of course, you learn that thing, like, inside and out. Um, right. But... You know, if you do the urinary system, you know, all told in like your first block in your second year or whatever it is, by the time you get to clinics, that's a very long time ago. So right. there's that too. Like there's a big period of forgetting that can occur kind of in between. And so there, then the argument can be made, like if you keep reviewing it or keep touching on it like year after year after year, then mm. at least you are re-familiarizing yourself with whatever that system is. So you don't really forget it. Um, But, you know, you might take longer to learn it um, overall. I think that ultimately, though, if you kind of look at that, if you're just talking about how to cluster things, um, we're still missing, like, a big piece of, you know, types of learning. Because if we're still just doing PowerPoint presentations where you're reading off of the slide, which... (laughs) Don't get me started about that, <laughs> like or like labs where you know you got to give a presentation at the end, and so no one's paying attention to each other's presentations because we're done with that, um, or you know right. lots of things that are not necessarily great learning tools. Then it doesn't really matter how you format it; um, it's still not going to be super effective. Like really, the best part or the best pieces of I think the veterinary education system and medical education kind of in general are those little. Um, experience-based or, you know, we have what's called application-based learning experiences um, or ABLEs mm-hmm. where like a week, we all sort of sit down in a small group and discuss a case. And we kind of go through a case and do, you know, research at night and then come back and then we get like a new sheet of paper about what happens next in the case. And so we're kind of like actively right. working through it. Right. And so that type of thing, um, I think, you know, a lot of schools have some thing very similar, but it's case-based learning. Um, and I think incorporating more of that is great. Um, One of our, I went to a curriculum meeting uh, between my first and second year, and they were kind of talking about how to change the UT curriculum. And one Mm -hmm. thing that one of the professors said was that there's all these different types, um, kind of what you're talking about with like blocks and not blocks and all those things. And really the one thing that mattered the most when they looked at it was how, how, how devoted the professors were. So Mm -hmm. if the professors were really into it and and wanted to teach, then those are the better programs that get more students or, you know, have have students get more out of it.
0: Right. Um, That's a a good point, because we were just talking with with my friends at at Mizzou after this past semester that uh, we were taking one course that was very heavily team taught, um, which I know is a pretty common thing in vet school. uh, And I think you really hit a good point about, I think the professor can make all the difference in the role. At least that's my opinion at this point, you know, in this one class we had, you know, half a dozen professors and it was very clear which concepts, uh, were, were actually learned. And it was really based off the professor and their teaching style and how devoted they were, like you said, um, to teaching or to the topic or just to their, their job in the classroom in general. Um, So I find that really interesting and sometimes unfortunate because we can't choose our professors in that situation, um, and we're kind of at the mercy of of them, uh, or we just teach ourselves, which we could, but that's really not fun. Um, Yeah. And I think that... So I don't know. You know, I think that a lot of professors go into
1: academia because they want to teach. I know that, and I'm sure it's different for different schools, but at UT in particular, like... That's a faculty that wants to teach. The focus is not on research necessarily. It's about the student experience. But even still, in that type of environment, you know you get run down by the politics of it. It's like it's like trying to, you know exist as a, a congressman or something like that. I mean, trying to do anything <laughs> different and, and move the needle in any direction is really, really difficult and can get exhausting. And so you have people who have you know who have been there for five years who are, really excited about it in, like, those first five years, and then you can kind of see that that it can kind of taper off. Um, and, and I think a big part of what you're talking about will depend on what, whether or not they can, they have other things that sort of drive them um, and are somehow still able to engage. And absolutely, there's amazing professors, and then there's others that are not so amazing. <laughs> and I think that, of course, that's unfortunate. But I think that we should, you know, as a school, it would be great if you could just try to make them a great a professor as possible. They don't learn, right? I mean, think about, like, there's no education, um, like, theory taught. And I've, I've asked about, about that. Like, there's some seminars that they can go to, and a lot of them are optional. Um, they're, like, once a month and maybe exist in cooperation with, um, uh, like, the education department, maybe. But, by and large like there's not a whole lot of like guidance when it comes to that kind of stuff and when you get the job it's not about how great of a teacher you are it's just kind of about other things and so you know they do their best right but <laughs> there's a lot of support that we can give them, <laughs> i think is totally. the overall
0: <laughs> totally okay so to close us out i have one last question for you um since you, uh, I know, are full of wisdom in terms of the the educational experience and teaching and learning and 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 veterinary medicine, what words of advice or words of wisdom do you have at this point in your career um, for the first and second year vet students that are maybe freaking out about you know how much work is involved and um, you know another big thing that I'm realizing and you you touched on it and I've and I've heard it from many other um, veterinarians over the past couple weeks is about our goal up until we got to vet school was getting into vet school. We worked our butt off to get the grades, to get the hours of shadowing and experience. And we got into vet school. Awesome. The goal has been uh, achieved, but now you're in vet school like, well, now what, you know, you forget that the reason you were doing that was to become a veterinarian. So um, I think that that's just one example of many of the the challenges and the, and the the mind games that go on, but any any words of advice for for the young vet students out there in terms of their struggles and and you know stresses and uh, imposter syndrome and all of that
1: the first I think just kind of to touch on what you just mentioned is that sort of realignment of goals, and I, I kind of talked about that before if you right. like the earlier that you can sit down and really you know grab a bottle of wine and a great friend or Bob Dylan or, you know, whatever it is that you need right. to, to kind of get you and and just try to write down all the things that are important to you and all the things that you want both out of your life and your career and, and, you know, write it down on a piece of paper, like write it down. If it's not written down, it's not real. Don't just sit there right. and think about it. Um, really write it down and then go off on your business. And then a couple of weeks later, come back and, and do it again and, and really try to figure out what, and this might take a long time, but But as you kind of do it, you'll have a better idea of what it is that you're doing, what it is that you want from this life. And if you can have those things on a piece of paper, then you can always come back to them. And as you get worried about, oh man, I didn't get an A in orthopedic surgery, um, or, you know, I I don't feel like I got, you know, the, I didn't get the the job on the anesthesia summer crew or, or, you know, whatever it is that you feel like would add to your resume, like go back to that list and be like, okay, well, you know what, that has nothing to do with anything that I actually want from this life. So... Really use that as guidance because I feel like we can really get ourselves into the stress spiral. Um, uh, another piece is, like, you know, take care of yourself. <laughs> I feel like what happens is, is man, we we um, are in this sort of like dark hole where we only eat donuts and cake and like Chick-fil-A or whatever it is like gets brought in by it's all like pizza. Yeah. I mean, great. Enjoy that stuff. But then also like go for a run (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) I feel like we, you know, we think, oh man, if we don't spend time studying, then we're never going to get through this mountain of material that we have, but it's a very, very long road. Um, you got to take care of yourself, and honestly, there's a ton of evidence to suggest that exercise increases your learning capacity. And so, the amount of right. time that you're going to like spend exercising, going to the pool, going to the gym, you know, running or whatever it is, even just walking around, um, that's going to come back and, and pay dividends. Like you, you haven't lost that time. It's not like a one for one situation. And so, you're going to be healthier, you're going to feel better, and you're actually going to learn better as well. Right. If you just right. get out and exercise a little bit. Um. Yeah, and then, you know, take time for friends and, and family and, and do those things because um, I'm realizing now as I kind of, you know, and I'm, again, old, aging, I'm at an, <laughs> an aged 32, you know, turning into like this right. decrepit 33 or, or whatever. I don't even know how old I am anymore. But, you know, I, I look back and I, I realize that, you know, it, you get really close to these people around you because you're kind of going through this... Uh, you know, can have, have fun times too, but it's, it's also a part of a, like a giant hell, <laughs> you know, at some point, right. you know, you just kind of feel terrible about it. And, um, you've made a lot of really close friends and, and we, I realize now as I'm kind of on the tail end of clinics that everyone's going to kind of disperse into the wind and you're going to see each other. Sure. at like at conferences and things like that, but you're never going to see each other in the same way. So take advantage of that stuff as, as often as possible. Um, Oh, imposter syndrome. That's huge. And, um, yeah, you are um, you don't know things, <laughs> but you also know a ton of things. So if you can kind of think back, even just kind of glance through your notes of whatever it is that you've done already, and just glancing through, just realize you will realize how much more you know now than you did, you know six months ago or whatever right. it is. And I think that the most valuable thing to understand is that you don't need to have all the information in your brain. You would love to be able to have like a a working ability to reason through some things, to prioritize uh, problems and, and things like that. And that comes with experience, which you're going to have during clinics. Um, but your major skill is to be able to know how to look up information. How, when you right. have this patient that's um, been vomiting for three weeks, like how it is that you are going to go into the literature or um, textbooks or call a university or whatever and just kind of get some, some traction in mm-hmm. understanding how to get to the diagnosis or at least how to treat this dog or cat or horse or cow or whatever, because that's, that's the key. Um, yeah, so you have that skill. and You're gonna be able to do it. And it's all about sort of confidence you're going to be fine. (laughs) Just pretend like you're, pretend that you can do it and one day you'll be able to do it. And I think that, let me, I'm just going to toss an anecdote in here. Um, and it's something that I like to sort of talk to my MCAT students about. And it's when I was, so I did improv comedy for a long time and it sort of surprises people to hear that I was once a very shy person, right? Like in my late mm-hmm. teens and early twenties, I was super shy. If I, if I wanted to order off of a menu, um, and, and there was like mayonnaise on the burger and I didn't want mayonnaise, I would not order the burger. I would not, <laughs> I would not be like, hold oh, the mayonnaise. <laughs> I thought that that was too complicated and I was going to get into some sort of like discussion. I didn't know how to handle that. So, um, so it was like a really big deal to force myself to kind of do improv. And I think that what ended up happening is I could have very easily quit and man oh man did I want to but what what instead happened is we would do like five shows a weekend and so I would keep on forcing myself to get up there and you just kind of make the moves. You, you stand on stage and you say things and you hope that somebody supports you. And, and eventually, um, somebody does, and eventually the audience laughs at you and you're going to fail like a ton. But if you kind of sit and realize, you know what, that failure wasn't so bad, it kind of moved me in that right direction. Um, what eventually happened to me is, is that I kind of worked on all that and I ended up being one of the more, you know, I guess, a pretty popular par- player on that, that team. And, um, I was invaluable for a long time and, I guess a pretty good improv player, and uh, then a good teacher, and um, and now I can order off of menus and <laughs> like it's a, <laughs> I don't know. It, if you just keep on moving forward and, and force yourself to do things that you're uncomfortable with, yeah, you're gonna fail a ton of times. But if you if you're moving in the direction that you want to be moving, you're gonna eventually succeed.
0: Um, right. So. I don't know. Yeah. You can't really go forward without failing. In my opinion, I think failings can be a good thing.
1: Yeah. Um, as long, especially if you're failing over the right things, if you're failing over not being prepared, right. If you show up to a rotation and you haven't read your oncology notes, which I have totally done. Um, and you failed because <laughs> of that, then that's less good. Right. So, right. but it's still fine because then you adjust, right. As soon as I did that. And like I had, I had to go poorly. I had to, a patient who had a very poor prognosis and I didn't know what the, you know, the cancer was. So I was just, just like talking to the the client, like nothing was a, a big deal, but apparently it was like two months uh, median survival time. Anyway, it was not, it was not good. So after that, I, I like, I stepped up my game. I absolutely will not go into a case without looking at it first. And so even in that, it was fine. But right, yeah, learn, learn something from that but you're going to be fine. It's going to be great. You just sort of like force yourself to be confident and eventually you will be.
0: Totally. No, I like that. You will be fine. I think that's the (laughs) the theme. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You will be okay. Um, Okay. So uh, to finally wrap it up, I have three rapid fire questions for you. Okay. You ready? Yep. Favorite color? Blue. What was the last thing to play on your iPhone, iPod, whatever? Um,
1: I wrote these... Uh, Okay, so in
0: 2010,
1: I wrote these songs to kind of, like, lampoon my wife's cousins. It was, uh, (laughs) like, four or five years into uh, our relationship, and and we went over, and, like, each song is for a different cousin. And, uh, you know, so, like, there's one who tries to date, you know, a bunch of single moms. Uh, there's, you know, someone who's got like four kids and lives in a trailer park. And so there's a song kind of about that. <laughs> and so, um, so that's the last thing. Cause it was just Christmas and we had a bunch of people around. So, uh, they wanted to
0: listen to that stuff again. And <laughs> so that's the last thing that we listened to. Good. All right. Last question. If you could be any animal, what would it be? Uh, I, I, I gotta, I don't know. Eagle, I guess. If, <laughs>
1: I don't think I have any,
0: you, I don't have any reason. Have other than that's the first thing that popped in my mind. That's what it is. Then, all right, good. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much for engaging this really great conversation. I think we uncovered a lot of really cool things um, and great topics and, and things to look out for and and ways that we can make a difference in the vet school system and how we learn things and how we become a better person. So, I think uh, I think vet students out there that are listening and and prospective students and veterinarians that may be listening i think there's there's definitely something to learn from this so thank you very much for your time and your insight thank you for having me um and good luck with your last five months of uh of vet school and 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 figuring out your future yeah thanks this is part (laughs) of that's how how i feel all right man thanks nice talk cool thanks so again, I want to say a huge thank you to Matt Ischuto for spending some time with me today uh, and to talk about this incredibly interesting topic. I hope you were able to take away some good tips and that maybe our conversation sparked some ideas of your own regarding your own experience in vet school. And thank you so much for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. For more resources and more information about the podcast, please check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or Instagram as well. You can also email me at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com with any suggestions or topics you'd like to hear about. uh, And I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to be on the podcast yourself uh, to share some insight of your own. So thank you once again. And we will talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM.